0: Well, hello there, you wonderful, wonderful, fantastic, geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. And we have a full hour this week of news, views and reviews. Well, not exactly, but we'll get to that. From the world of geek. After last week's little foray into parts unknown, I'm back in my regular studio at my regular desk with my regular microphone. And everything is as back to normal as normal ever gets around here. Uh, Just a quick thank you to all the people who got in touch after last week to uh, check out that I was okay. Um, Yeah, I'm fine. Honestly, Uh, the issue wasn't an issue with me. I just happened to be caught up in it and um, had to be unexpectedly away from home for longer than I'd anticipated. That's all it was. I simply didn't have access to my regular kit. Honestly, thank you for your concern. It was was heartwarming. Uh, Right. Okay. so. If you are new to the show and you listened for the first time ever last week, and you're currently sitting there thinking, hang on, where's Helen? Where's Steve? Why aren't you talking about Firefly? Well, we did that. Uh, I did, as I suggested I might last week, drop the second part of that historical Firefly discussion into Tuesday's repeat. It will be available on Listen Again on uh, Harrogate Community Radio, and it is also in the podcast feed of this very show. If you just stick Geeking with Destination Venus into the podcatcher of your choice, I am sure that you will find it. But enough of that. I'm here, I'm back, and this is the all-new 2024 Geeking with Destination Venus. i promised that things would be a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more organised, and I'm going to stick with that. So today, we have a news and sort of tech-focused episode. Next week will be a review-focused episode because by next Thursday, I will have watched the whole of Marvel Studios' Echo. Uh, all five episodes of the, show, the season have dropped. I have watched the first two, and I really like it. They've done a really clever job of not, Ignoring the whimsy of the Hawkeye show that introduced the character to the MCU. But they've done a complete about-face and gone very hard-boiled. And it really, really works. So anyway, that's, that's for next week. So next week, review-based stuff. This week, news and stuff. And of course, to that end, we have a jingle. So the big news story I suspect for most of 2024 is going to be the abuse of AI. That is to say, people abusing AI in order to do things they probably shouldn't use AI for. And me abusing AI, as in being abusive towards AI, because the more they do with it, the more I hate it. Honestly, seriously, come on. Look, we have a very firm position on this show, that technology itself is neutral. It is how the technology is used that matters. So, I will state fairly regularly on the record, AI itself has huge, huge potential to do huge, vast, massive amounts of good. It really does. But, and it's a big, big put. No one's using it for that, or at least they probably are, but we're not hearing about it. What we constantly hear about is people who have absolutely no understanding of culture using it to destroy culture. In the past few days, even, there has been news that publisher HarperCollins is instructing its staff to put manuscripts that have been sent into HarperCollins by writers to use by using them to train a generative AI system without the author's knowledge or consent. Now, that may actually technically turn out to be legal, but it is, with that question, utterly, utterly vile and devoid of any kind of morality that I can see. Because what that is effectively doing is stealing from those writers with the intention of using those writers manuscripts to generate i'm going to have to call it on I hate calling thing content but when it's generated by ai i can't think of a better word for it so they're going to use writers work to train an ai system to generate content that they will monetize but that the writer who has produced the work that the AI was trained on, will not benefit from, and in fact may lose work because content is being generated by that AI that they have contributed to, but not benefited from. That is stealing any which way you look at it, as far as I can see. There has been some pushback on this. There is a lawsuit going on. Uh, The New York Times, of all people, the New York Times. Is suing an AI company, I think it's ChatGPT actually, on those very grounds, the idea that New York Times journalism has been used, you know, stuff that the New York Times has paid for has been scraped and used to train AI systems, which the New York Times makes no benefit from, and that that was done without the New York Times' knowledge or consent, using material copyright of the New York Times. So that lawsuit is ongoing. Uh, There's also a lawsuit from a bunch of artists, uh, a Clash Action suit, which is building uh, Midjourney, the AI heavy air quote, art generating software um, that has, again, just stolen and plagiarised work from actual artists in order to generate these images, has been forced to release a list of all the artists that it scraped. And those artists are now beginning to band together and sue Mid-Journey for you know breach of copyright and theft of their intellectual property. And the defense in both cases I think is interesting and speaks volumes. The, the defense boils down basically to, yeah, but you've got to let us do this because there's no business model if we have to pay these people. Which is a bit like saying, Yeah. You know, I understand that stealing is wrong, but my car sales business that involves me stealing people's cars and then selling them on my car lot, that doesn't work if I have to pay people for their cars. So you're just gonna to have to let me off. You see how nonsense that is? That's that's the mindset of the tech bros who are pushing this AI theft. If I sound even more irritated than normal with all of this AI filth, well there's a reason for that. I am annoyed because a story has broken today that elevates the AI tech bros from thieves to grave robbers, and I am furious about it. So, look, this show is not known for its journalistic integrity. There is none, okay? Absolutely none in this story, as far as I am concerned. A, A journalist. has to rise above the emotion of a story, has to be objective and balanced. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to be because I am livid about this. Deep breath. OK, now, younger listeners may not know who George Carlin was. Older listeners might not know either because he's not nearly as well known as he should have been. He is one of the finest stand-ups who ever lived. He was Brilliant. Just Google George Carlin. Go to YouTube and stick George Carlin's name in there and just watch some of his stuff. If you have any love of stand up comedy at all, then George, you will love George Carlin. You just, you, you just will. Um, if you've ever seen the film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, you will know him as Rufus, uh, who is the future futuristic guide who sends Bill and Ted on that very first excellent adventure through time. He was hugely influential, not just in the world of stand-up comedy, although a, American stand-up comedy would not be what it is today without George Carlin's career. Uh, he was also a, a profound um, social commentator. Uh, he worked on you know all the late-night TV shows. Um, he... Produced a number of uh, stand up specials which, you know, genuinely, genuinely had an effect on American culture. And he was involved in the change in the law in America. Uh, his seven dirty words routine was central to the Supreme Court case uh, that went before the United States Supreme Court in 1978, uh, the case FCC versus Pacifica Foundation, uh, in which uh, there was a 5-4 decision affirming the U.S. government's power to censor what they regard as indecent material on the public airwaves. Uh, the, the person in question was George Carlin. Um, his career was huge. Uh, it began in uh, his first album um, back in the days when comedy albums were a thing. It uh, was put out in 1966. He received five Grammys throughout his career uh, for different comedy albums. Uh, He had his own sitcom between 1994 and 1995. It was not massively successful. Uh, He's in Dogma. He's in Prince of Tides. He's in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. He's in Scary Movie 3. He's in Jersey Girl. Uh, He voiced Zuga in Tarzan 2. He's Fillmore in Cars. uh, And he's Mr. Conductor on the Shining Time Station. Uh, This guy was literally everywhere. He also did the American voice for Thomas the Tank Engine. So, come on, this guy is hugely, hugely influential and a massive, massive, world-shaking talent. But he's dead. He died in June 2008. So, it's a little bit disconcerting that a a one-hour special featuring new material by George Carlin has just dropped on YouTube. Of course, that isn't what's happened. What's happened is some ghoul has used AI to generate what the computer thinks is a George Carlin routine and to reproduce George Carlin's voice. Now, this isn't necessarily a black and white, cut and dried issue. The idea that you can digitally resurrect people so that they can feature in films and TV stuff. That's not something I automatically object to. I did not mind when they resurrected Peter Cushing to star in Row One, for example, because it was done in a respectful way. It was done with the consent of the family of the actor involved. Peter Cushing's family were consulted about this in the same way that Carrie Fisher's family were consulted when she was digitally inserted into The Rise of Skywalker. Although I suspect Carrie Fisher would have had a few things to say about the quality of that movie. I don't object to her being in it. And, you know, and in fact, in that case, there had been discussions with Carrie Fisher while she was alive about using CG and AI to create a young Princess Leia, also in Rogue One. So, you know, there are circumstances where it's okay. But this... This issue with George Carlin, this is not one of those circumstances. I'm going to be honest. This is on YouTube, and I'm not going to give you any more information than that, because I don't want you to go and watch it. I haven't gone and watched it, and the reason I haven't is because I actually don't care if it's funny. I really don't. It shouldn't exist, and I am not giving the ghouls who have put this together the clicks, because that is how they make their money, and I don't want them to make any money off the memory of George Carlin. They don't deserve it because they have not done this the right way. There is a way. I mean, if they'd done this the right way, they wouldn't have done it because his family would have said, please don't do that. But they didn't do it the right way. They didn't even have the courtesy to contact the family. They just dropped this thing onto YouTube. Carlin's daughter has released a statement uh, which says, my dad spent a lifetime perfecting his craft from his very human life, brain and imagination. No machine will ever replace his genius. These AI-generated products are clever attempts at trying to recreate a mind that will never exist again. Let's let the artist work speak for itself. Humans are so afraid of the void that we can't let what has fallen into it stay there. Here's an idea. How about we give some actual living human comedians a listen to? But if you want to listen to the genuine George Carlin, he has 14 specials that you can find anywhere. And do you know what? I stand with Kelly Carlin because this is disgraceful. This is treating George Carlin like a commodity. And do you know what? Even if you don't think he was any good, even if his comedy was not as important to you as it is to me, George Carlin... Is not a commodity. George Carlin was a person, a person who had a family, a person who had fans, a person who had a life which is over and who should be allowed to rest. We're going to see a lot more of this kind of shenanigans, and I don't know what we do about it. Uh, We're also beginning to see people who have done bad things basically saying they didn't, And that any evidence that they did is AI generated. We're going to see a lot of that this year as well, particularly in the US, because there's an election happening there. And, well, it started already. So we're going to keep an eye on this. Um, I'm going to try and not get as angry as I did about the George Carlin thing again. Uh, I probably am, however, because what, what particularly frustrates me is... We have this technology, which is so powerful and could do so much good stuff. And it's being used for this. Come on, do better, humanity. And breathe. And so let's move out of tech news and into something less likely to spike my blood pressure. Let's have a look at the news from the world of movies and TV and stuff. First up is the frankly brilliant news that the comic series Criminal, By Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, has been ordered to series by Amazon Prime. Now, the announcement of this has been a little marred for some people. By the way, that Sean Phillips, the artist on the series, has been a little bit sidelined in the publicity. Now, this is something of a trend where the writer of a comic gets all of the publicity and all of the glory when... Something is made into a movie or a TV show. And the artist gets kind of ignored. Now, it's annoying because, well, first of all, I can't imagine it doesn't create a rift between the writer and the artist. I don't know Sean um, Ed Brubaker at all. I've met Sean Phillips a couple of times. He's a really nice guy. I suspect he actually isn't having a problem with any of this. But somewhere, it must sting just a little bit, surely. And also, It demonstrates that the people who are doing the publicity don't understand what comics are. Because, yes, Ed Brubaker wrote Criminal. And I think he's he's attached to to the show in some capacity or other. And no, the show doesn't need an artist in the way that it probably does need writers. But that doesn't mean that the storytelling in the comic on which the show is going to be based is all from the writer. That's not how comics work. The storytelling is also done by the artist. And I really wish that was recognised more. So that's that's my little gripe about that. But, I mean, that a show based on a comic uh, is coming to Amazon Prime, that's great stuff, especially when that show is not superhero-based. I mean, what Criminal is, is a, a, a sort of interlocking universe of interrelated crime stories that each each story in the criminal comic series sort of stands by itself you don't need to read any particular story in order to understand any particular other story although you do get sort of recurring characters who we see at different points in their lives and different points in their career there's one particular character where we know how he dies because he's killed in one of the very first stories but then we see him at different stages in his life, other stories set at different times, including interacting with the guy we know is going to kill him. So, you know, it's an interesting way of presenting a story. Now, I don't know if the TV show will do that. TV tends to be much more linear. But any comic based TV show that isn't a superhero show is just another signal to the wider world that there's more to comics than superheroes. And I'm always here. For that and you know, uh, there, is, there are some chops here. I mean, Baker himself, um, has some TV chops, he's not only a comic writer. Uh, he was a supervising producer on HBO's Westworld, uh, he co created Amazon's Too Old to Die Young, um, he worked on The Falcon and the Winter Soldier over at Disney, uh, he was the co show on the animated Batman Caped Crusader, um. And so, you know, he's got he's got that going on. Harper, Jordan Harper, the, the, the guy who's also bringing this to the screen, uh, he's also got you know, a, a fairly impressive TB portfolio. Um, he's he's worked on Gotham and The Mentalist. And he's got some crime writing chops. He's written uh, a, a crime novel uh, called Everybody Knows, uh, named as the best crime novel of the year by the New York Times in 2023. So, you know, that's not bad. Um, and I think he's he also wrote uh, a, a novel called She Rides Shotgun, uh, which won the Edgar Award for the best first novel and is currently, I think, being adapted as a feature film with um, Taron... Egerton, I think that's are safe their name, attached as the star. I mean, that that's pre, 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 pre-production. But still, um, Brubaker actually did make a point of mentioning Sean Phillips uh, when he was talking about this. Uh, he said, you know, Sean and I have been building this world in our books for over a decade. And now to be able to bring it to life for Amazon is just incredible. And to have Amazon support the project in the way they have and show so much faith in my and Jordan's vision for the show is even more incredible. So, you know, Sean Phillips is not forgotten, but I really, really hope his contribution is actually lauded a little bit more than that, because Sean Phillips absolutely deserves to be acknowledged for a huge part of the success of the Criminal series, because it's one of the very few books that I initially picked up for the art. I don't normally do that. In other TV and movie news, uh, we also had this week the news that we are definitely not getting season four of The Mandalorian, which I honestly didn't think was a surprise because I rather thought that season three of The Mandalorian sort of wrapped that story up. Uh, Spoiler, I'm not blowing the spoiler horn, but spoilers for The Mandalorian season three. It ends with Mando kind of essentially going into a sort of Farmsteading retirement. After Bo-Katan takes control of Mandalore and becomes the, the 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 anointed leader of the Mandalorians, and Grogu is now you know as a foundling, in Jaren's responsibility to raise in the Creed, and I, it had a nice little wrap up, and I thought that was fine. So I wasn't surprised that we weren't getting season four of the Mandalorian. I am surprised that season four of the Mandalorian is now going to be a movie called The Mandalorian and Grogu. I don't know that we needed it. I mean, I'll watch it. Of course I'll watch it. Although I will say that Lucasfilm does have something of a track record now of announcing film and TV projects to great fanfare and then not actually making them. Hello, Rogue Squadron. I'm looking at you. So we will see whether that happens. But I'm intrigued. Uh, Rich Johnson has some good reporting on this over at um, Bleeding Cool, uh, although he focuses more on the announcement of Ahsoka Season 2. Now, again, I am not surprised that we're going to get an Ahsoka Season 2. I, I kind of assumed that was already pretty much locked and greenlit. I, there are clearly going to have to be some changes, I think, to what they intended because Ray Park, who... What's definitely being built up to be a major part of whatever happens next is clearly no longer with us. It seems to me that Lucasfilm kind of knew that this announcement wasn't going to be much of a revelation because of the way they announced it. Because it seems to have been sort of just dropped into the end of the press conference almost as an afterthought. However, we do have some artwork from. Season two, sort of concept, pencil and ink sketching announcing that the story continues featuring Ahsoka and Sabine who if you remember were left at the end of season one far 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 away from a galaxy far 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 away uh, and they're sort of standing on the finger of a big Lord of the Rings-esque statue uh, of the kind we saw at the end of season one uh, that Ray Park was standing on at the time so that's all that's all good um Directed by Jon Favreau and produced by uh, by Favreau and Kathleen Kennedy, who is, of course, the Lucasfilm boss, uh, and Dave Filoni, Filoni, The Mandalorian and Grogu is slated to begin production in 2024. Uh, so this year. So we'll see. Uh, Ahsoka Season 2 is in development. So there's no word on when that will start filming. Uh, we do know. Uh, that Natasha Liu Bordizzo, uh, who played Sabine Wren, Mar- Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who played Hera, um, Eman Esfandi, who played Ezra, uh, Lars Mickleston, who was Thrawn, uh, Ivana Shanko who was Shin Haiti, uh, and so on, are all still attached. Um, Ray Stevenson's name is still attached to this as Balin Skull. Now, obviously, as I say, he's no longer with us. So I hope they're not planning anything untoward. With that, Um, I I suspect actually what's happened is the press release has just released the cast of season one. Um, So, again, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, And again, in other movie news, we've also had just a little bit more of a drip feed of info regarding uh, James Gunn's Superman legacy. Um, Now, I'm always nervous about DC movies because... To date, the recent crop has been, how can I put this, rubbish. I've never been less enthused by a cinematic comics-based universe than the DC Extended Universe. Uh, this is not a dig at Snyder. I don't like Snyder's vision of the DCU. I don't think Snyder was the reason it was terrible. Just just for the record, before the Snyder bros jump on my back again. I've said before... That I think the reason the DCEU was not great was because the people who were signing the checks didn't really understand what they had. They didn't care for the characters. I think the reason that Marvel has done so well in the movies until recently is that the people making the movies really cared about the characters, and it showed. They also took it steady. You know, we started in 2008 with Iron Man. If Iron Man had flopped, I suspect we would have gone no further, but it didn't. It was a huge success because it was good. And so then we got the Incredible Hulk, which actually, for honest, was less good. And then they started really going into building up their universe. So we got Iron Man 2 that introduced Black Widow, We then get Thor and then Captain America, and eventually you've got enough to build a team, and that's when we get the Avengers, and that's when things start getting big and massive and cosmic. But it took years to build up to that. What happened, I think, with the DCEU is that people who didn't really care about the characters and who were quite impatient to get the billion-dollar box office that Marvel was getting, kind of thought, well, that's superhero nonsense, and we've got superheroes, we can do the same nonsense. And so you get a couple of movies, and then they went straight to Justice League, and nobody was invested in the characters. And even if the Justice League movie had been great, and I'm told that the Three Eyes Snyder God is – Uh, I will never know because there's no way I'm sitting down to watch three hours of a Zack Snyder movie. But that's on me. You know, if other people tell me that the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League is great, I'm going to believe them. I'll take their word for it. But the cinematic cut that the vast majority of people saw, that's not good. And that poisons the well a little bit. And honestly, the DC movie's never really recovered. I think... Although I very much regret that Henry Cavill was treated in the way he was and that he now is no longer going to be Superman, I completely understand why James Gunn has decided to just draw a line under all of that and start again. That's what Superman Legacy is supposed to be. It's a brand new start. Um, And we've had an announcement that Rachel Brosnan, will be the new Lois Lane and yeah she is just dropping little factoids out there Uh, she was interviewed on the red carpet of the Golden Globe um, and she was saying that you know herself and David Correnswet who is playing Superman uh. We're, we're getting on really well with James Gunn. They're talking a lot about where the project fits into Superman's life and how they're going to be trying to put their own stamp on things. Um, now, Superman Legacy has some very impressive names attached. Um, alongside uh, Corinne Sweat as Clark Kent Superman and Rachel Brosnahan as Lois Lane, uh, we've also got Nathan Fillion. Nathan Fillion as Guy Gardner, the Green Lantern. That's very interesting, actually. Uh, I love Nathan Fillion. Look, if you were listening last week, you know how much we love Nathan Fillion. So him as a sort of anti-hero, Guy Gardner is the bad boy Green Lantern. He's the one that everybody else kind of tolerates. He's the, He's the weird uncle at Thanksgiving Green Lantern, Guy Gardner. Um, interesting to see Fillion taking on a role like that uh, Isabella uh, Mercedes as Hawkgirl uh, Edie uh, Gathegi and I'm sorry Edie I'm probably pronouncing both your names wrong um, as Mr Terrific um, Anthony Carrigan as Metamorpho I'm desperate to see how he how they do Metamorpho I, I love Metamorpho as a character but we'll probably go into that more closer to the time uh, Maria Gathegi uh, Gabriella Di Faria as the engineer or an- uh, Angela Speaker, who is an authority character. Again, really interested to see where they go with that. And of course, Nicholas Hoult as uh, Lex Luthor. Um, this is a really interesting cast. If I have a worry, it's that there are too many characters there. Um, a Superman movie that also has Green Lantern and Hawkgirl and Mr. Terrific and Metamorpho and the engineer. That's a lot. That is a lot. And again, DC has a history of spoiling movies by putting too many characters in them. And uh, Batman and Robin, I am very much looking at you. So I trust James Gunn. I do trust James Gunn. Uh, My first experience of a James Gunn Gunn movie that I was aware of it being a James Gunn movie was Guardians of the Galaxy. And there he does take. A huge roster of characters introduces every single one of them for the first time and tells an incredible story that you are invested in and where you care about what happens to those characters. So he can clearly do it. It's just he's doing it at DC now and DC have this track record and I am nervous because it's DC. So. (sighs) Currently, Superman Legacy has a release date of July 2025, July the 11th, if we're going to be completely spot on with that. And I don't know, are they going to hit that target? Are they going to they going to make that release date? I hope so. Uh, But it's DC, so I'm expecting delays. And the whole thing really all suggests that we are not going to have the saturation of comic book superhero movies. That we've been used to in recent years. For some time to come. There's not much happening in 2024. Um, yeah, there are a couple of Sony Spider-Man projects that I couldn't care less about. I really, really couldn't. Uh, and again, if you love those movies, you do you. But I, I genuinely can't get excited about them. I don't expect them to do huge box office. Uh, and, and there's not that much actually slated at the moment for 2025 either. This perhaps... Is a good thing. I think the Marvel Universe in particular was perhaps a bit too big and doing a little bit too much. Perhaps a really good superhero movie every couple of years is better than a lot of not great super- superhero movies all at once. I still love them and I'm still going to go and watch them, but it's becoming clear that the general public, the non geek public, isn't and if that's the case, there's no point flogging a dead horse. Much better then rather than to appeal to the mass market to go for fans and do it less and do it better because fans are really critical. We shall see. But for now, we'll end the news there. There's- News really changes everything. And we'll move on to a segment I do not currently have a jingle for. Uh, It's not science and it's not space. Um, I suppose it's engineering, but it's also environmental eco stuff. Uh, So I need to figure out either an eco jingle or an engineering jingle. Or both. Could do both. Both is good. This is the kind of thing I do want to clearly differentiate from the, the regular. Geek News section. Uh, So just just imagine the trailer. Let the trailer be in your head. As we talk about engineering. Some good tech news. The good tech news is that Hawaii's last coal-fired power plant has closed. Now that's great. But also, what's even greater is what's replaced it. Because this... Could potentially be the start of something amazing because what's replaced it is effectively a giant battery. So I know, yeah, right. So what's happened? Well, Hawaii shut down its last coal plant uh, back in 2022 on the 1st of September. That took 180 megawatts of power out of the grid on Oahu. Um, now that is a massive step in Hawaii's quest to be the first in the US to cease burning fossil fuels for electricity but if you take that amount of power out of your power grid what exactly do you replace it with how do you maintain a reliable power grid while you switch off all of the fossil fuel powered power plants and switch to smaller renewable power plants that are kind of dependent on the weather if the wind doesn't blow wind doesn't work if the sun doesn't shine actually that's a bad example if the sun doesn't shine solar power does still work but it doesn't work as well and it doesn't produce as much electricity hydroelectric can only get you so far tide and wave can only get you so far what the problem actually is with renewables is that sometimes you've got too much and sometimes you haven't got enough. There's no way of evening out the supply. That's what fossil fuel powered plants gave you. If you didn't need so much power, you just turned a plant off. If you needed more, you fired one up and it didn't take very long. These days, you you can't just run out to a wind turbine and go... You know, we do not have an unlimited supply of big bad wolves to huff and puff and blow those wind turbines around. We can't all nip out with a flashlight and shine them on solar panels. It just doesn't work like that. But sometimes renewable power does produce a surplus. And if we could find a way of storing that surplus until it was needed, that would be a massive thing and that's what they've done that's what hawaii has done it has a gigantic battery that is unlike any other gigantic battery that has ever existed the kapole and again i'm sorry hawaii for mispronouncing things i'm sure i am the kapole energy storage system began commercial operations just before christmas on the industrial west side of oahu uh Plus Power, a Houston-based firm, has developed and owns the project, and they had the good sense. I mean, they, they are quite PR savvy, uh, and they did wait to do the big announcement until after Christmas, when all the journalists were back from their from their jollies and back at their desk. But now, the Capole system has 158 Tesla Megapacks, charging and discharging based on signals from the Hawaiian. Electricity company Hawaiian Electric. The plant has 185 megawatts of instantaneous discharge capacity, which matches what the old power plant could do. So now literally, if Hawaii, you know, they goes into the adverts in the Super Bowl and everybody goes and puts the kettle on at the same time. Which I know they don't do in America, but come on. You get the you know, everybody turns the telly on at the same time or whatever, and there's a sudden surge in demand. Now on Hawaii they can just flick a switch. And the Coppola storage system will just release that energy onto the grid. It has a 250 millisecond response time, which is pretty, pretty good. So when the grid is flush with energy, this system absorbs that and stores it until it's needed when it releases it. It's brilliant. Now. Is it perfect? No. Um, it's using Tesla batteries. Um, the kind of thing you get in Tesla cars and in the Tesla Power Wall. If anything goes wrong with one of these batteries, you are going to have one heck of a blaze. But I'm sure they factored that in to their safety things. And do you know what? I would have a Tesla Power Wall in my house if I had a way of charging it up. I really, really would. Um, Grid batteries operate in a fundamentally different way than coal plants. So, they have needed to come up with a, a new framework to fit this thing into the, the system. They have had some fairly serious obstacles to overcome from an engineering point of view. Um, but they've overcome them, it works. This is not just a proof of concept experiment. This is a thing that's actually operating right now. As we speak, it's there, storing power and potentially releasing it into the grid when it's needed, which means that everyone else can now look at this and see how they can implement this on their own grid. This is something that is going to make renewable energy much more attractive and much more efficient, much more reliable. And it's a, a really positive step in moving us away from fossil fuels, which we have to do. Now, batteries do come with their own problems. We must never, ever imagine that batteries are a pollution free alternative to fossil fuels. It's just a different kind of pollution. The chemicals involved in making batteries, the rare earth minerals involved in making batteries are hideously toxic, so why are you not supposed to throw batteries away in your regular bin? We don't want that stuff in landfill. And the ethics of mining those rare earth minerals are also not exactly squeaky clean. But, but, those are things that can be addressed. They must be addressed, but they can be addressed. The urgent problem at the moment is climate change. And this is a huge contribution to maybe turning a corner on fossil fuel use which has to end if we're ever going to get a handle on climate change. So it's a really, really positive news story. Now, to close out this news heavy edition, we're going to go for a slightly less positive news story, which is taking place right now above our heads in... Because, oh yeah... Still got that jingle. Love a good jingle. You know me. So, space. There's only one story to talk about, really, isn't there? Back on Tuesday morning to great fanfare. The Peregrine Mission 1 launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And it was launched to great fanfare because it was a NASA mission, or it was carrying a NASA mission, to the moon but it was a private launcher. Um, The Peregrine spacecraft, although carrying NASA instruments and launching from a NASA facility, was launched by a company called Astrobotic, part of NASA's mission to involve private enterprise much more in space and perhaps just to move a little bit away from SpaceX, who... Because they're headed by Elon Musk, although the company itself, SpaceX, is doing great work, it's got Elon Musk at the head. And that must be starting to make the fairly serious people at NASA a little bit nervous. He's not the kind of guy they're used to doing business with. So there was quite a lot riding on this, actually. They were sending a robotic lander to the moon. This is, you know, not an, not an inexpensive thing. And particularly because other countries have put stuff on the moon recently. China has done it. India has done it. America, just for prestige purposes, really, could have done with doing it too. Unfortunately, uh, the mission did not go as planned. Uh, suffering what they're describing as a critical fuel loss en route to the moon. Um, they're They're trying to salvage any kind of science they can out of the mission, but there is zero chance of getting that lunar lander to the moon. It's not landing, or at least what they've actually said is that there is no chance of a soft landing on the moon, which means the only way they're getting it to the moon is if they crash it, which they don't want to do. So, uh, this is one of those things where it is actually pretty, from NASA's point of view, it's pretty disastrous. They've lost a good deal of face over this. They've lost an expensive bit of kit over this. And this isn't going to help them when they go back to Congress for some funding, given that Congress is more than a little bit hostile to science at the moment. So it's fair to say that they could do without this. However, as I said with previous SpaceX launches that have gone, air quotes, wrong, this is an initial launch. This system has not really been used for anything before. It's a prototype. It's a test flight. Test flights go wrong. Space, as they keep telling us, is hard. And maybe NASA shouldn't have put something quite so high profile on top of something quite so untested. But ultimately, you got to do what you got to do. And in that sense, it's not a disaster. The engineering team will learn from this, and there will be advancements made as a result. So would it be better if this had not happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah, really, really would. But is this actually a disaster? No. Nobody was killed. Nobody was hurt. Some people's pride was hurt. I suspect there are one or two people at NASA's publicity department who are now regretting giving this mission quite the fanfare they gave it. It was covered live on Radio 4. So, you know, it was given quite the publicity. And you know that turns out to have been unfortunate. Most people wouldn't have known about it if it hadn't been hyped up so much. There are probably lessons to learn there if you're NASA. But all in all, we had a successful launch. What went wrong was the separation of stages. That seems to be where the fuel leak has happened. Now, that means that there isn't the propellant needed to do crazy stuff like obtain a a stable lunar orbit and stuff like that. There isn't the fuel to do that now, which is why the mission is not going to proceed as planned. But equally, nothing's actually been destroyed. So there is still worthwhile science that can be gleaned from this. Yes, it's very much making the best of a bad job, but NASA is actually very good at that. So I'm choosing to see my glasses half full and not half empty. Oh, there are questions that are being raised. It wasn't just NASA stuff on board this rocket. There were also human remains. Uh, there are a couple of companies in America that will send some of your ashes into space or whatever for a a fairly high price. I'm not sure that NASA wants to get involved in that kind of thing, even by association. I, I you know, maybe they don't want to uh, have their space probes hitch a ride on what is effectively somebody else's I, I don't know. I, don't, I, I actually, I'm interested to in know how you guys feel about it. I don't think the optics of that are great. And I don't think it does anything to help NASA portray itself as the serious scientific organisation that it is. But I suppose that is, you know, the, the downside of hitching a ride on somebody else's spaceship. Occasionally, it's going to be carrying stuff that you don't necessarily want to be on the bus with. To stretch the analogy, that's the issue you always face when you use public transport as opposed to your car. It's much more environmentally friendly. It's much more efficient. Uh, It's not necessarily as neat. That's a price that NASA are just going to have to pay. And so we will leave space there. I was going to talk about the X-38B, but I'm going to leave that for now. Because I think, honestly, a top secret CIA space plane probably deserves an episode all to itself. So that's it for space. Space. We have just enough time to drop in a new segment you may have noticed we've not done a wonderful woman of science for a while and we're going to let that series rest for a little while but we're not leaving the idea of the contribution of women to culture alone no what we're going to do is talk about wonderful women of science fiction and we're going to start with my favorite woman of science fiction who is responsible for one of my very favorite science fiction things of all So come with me, dear listener, to London in 1935, where a little baby girl has been born, the daughter of a Jewish accountant. She will grow up to be educated at Rodine School. Uh, She'll leave there at the age of 16 with six O-levels, and she'll then go and do some language studies in the University of Paris before enrolling at Secretarial College and then returning to London for 18 months. In that time, she'll get her very first job, typing menus at the Kensington De Vere Hotel, which gives her the job because she's been to France and could speak French, which was important. This is the 1950s, and she'll eventually move on. In 1956, she'll get a job as a secretary in the press office of Granada Television. This will be her first foray into TV, although she will be sacked from that job after six months. Following that dismissal, um, she will go on to take a job as a shorthand typist at ABC Weekend Television. And she'll soon become the secretary to the company's head of drama. And then she'll become a production secretary working on a programme called State Your Case. From there, she'll move properly into production, away from admin, working on drama programming on ABC's popular anthology series Armchair Theatre. She'll also be involved, from a geek perspective, this is quite important, in early episodes of The Avengers, back when it was Steed and Mrs Peel. This is also where she will come into the orbit of the new head of drama at ABC, which is a guy from Canada called Sidney Newman. Now, British TV in the 1950s is not the well-organised, slick affair that it is today. In 1958, while Lambert is working as a production assistant on Ampshire Theatre, for exact example, an actor will actually die during a live broadcast and she will need to step in to direct the cameras from the gallery while the actual director worked with the actors on the studio floor, live, live, to figure out how on earth they're going to deal with that so the audience at home doesn't notice. That rarely happens on Strictly. In 1961, Lambert left ABC and spent a year working as the personal assistant to American television producer uh, David Suskind. Uh, at uh, Talent Associates in New York. She then returned to England, rejoined ABC with the ambition to become a television director, but found it impossible to gain promotion and was stuck at production assistant level. And she decided at that point that if she couldn't get a better job than that within a year, she was just quitting television. I'm really glad she didn't. Because Sidney Newman left ABC in 1962 to take up the position of head of drama at BBC Television. The following year, our heroine joined him, having been specifically recruited by Sidney Newman to produce a programme that he had personally conceived and initiated as an educational science fiction serial for early Saturday evenings. The programme that Sidney Newman had envisaged concerned the adventures of an old man who travelled through space and time in a craft disguised as a police box. Yeah, I am talking, ladies and gentlemen, about the awesome Verity Lambert, the first producer of Doctor Who, a series that many at the BBC predicted would not last longer than 13 weeks Now, Lambert was not Sidney Newman's first choice to produce the series. Uh, Don Taylor and Sean Sutton, both very senior producers at the BBC, had both turned him down. But he was very keen to see that Lambert took the job because he'd been impressed by her work at ABC. He told Doctor Who magazine in 1933, in 1993, must read my notes more clearly, Um, he told, Doctor Who magazine. I remembered Verity as being bright and to use the phrase full of piss and vinegar. It must be okay for me to say that on the radio because Sidney Newman said it and he worked for the BBC. She was gutsy and she used to fight and argue with me, even though she was not at a very high level as a production assistant. And he wanted that. He wanted that spirit running Doctor Who. So Lambert arrived at the BBC in June 1963. She was initially sort of paired up with a more experienced associate producer, Mervyn Pinfield. Doctor Who debuted on the 23rd of November 1963 and very quickly became a massive success, building, if we're honest, largely on the popularity of the Daleks. Donald Wilson, who was head of serials at the BBC at the time and therefore significantly superior to Lambert, had actually strongly advised against using the script which introduces the Daleks, But after the serial's successful airing, he basically acknowledged that Lambert clearly knew what to do with the series much better than he did, and he would therefore no longer be interfering in her decisions. That's astonishingly enlightened for a bloke in the 60s, I have to say. Uh, The success of Doctor Who and the Daleks gained an awful lot of attention for Lambert herself. The Daily Mail in 1964 had a whole feature on the Doctor Who series focusing on the young female producer and how good she looked. Uh, I'm quoting directly now from the fail. The operation of the Daleks is conducted by a remarkably attractive young woman called Verity Lambert, who, at 28, is not only the youngest, but the only female drama producer at BBC TV. Tall, dark and shapely, she became positively forbidding when I suggested that the Daleks might one day take over Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, she didn't take, f- take fools kindly, didn't Ver- Verity Lambert um verity lambert oversaw the first two seasons of the program and the first part of the third before leaving in 1965 uh 30 years later she would tell doctor who magazine there comes a time when a series needs new input it's not that i wasn't fond of doctor who i simply felt that the time had come it had been 18 very concentrated months something like 70 shows i know people do shows soaps forever now but i felt doctor who needed someone to come in with a different view I think it's very fair to say that Verity Lambert left Doctor Who very much on a high. Um, She went on to do a bunch of other stuff at the BBC uh, uh, before leaving in 1969 to join join London Weekend Television, where she produced the show Budgie in 1970 to 1972, uh, Between the Wars in 1973, uh, and then did some freelance stuff at the BBC uh, something called Shoulder to Shoulder in 1974. Uh, some plays about the suff- suffragette um, movement. Um, she then became head of drama in the mid 70s at Thames Television, uh, where she was responsible for the Naked Civil Servant, uh, which featured future doctor John Hurt as Quentin Crisp. Um, she produced Rumpole of the Bailey, Edward and Mrs. Simpson. These are things I remember my mum watching back in the day. Um, she was also one of the producers of The Sweeney. Uh, So she had a really glittering TV career outside of science fiction. Um, Her shows were award-winning. Indeed, her career was so glittering, I don't have time here to tell you everything she did. And I suppose, really, that very first thing she did has shone so brightly, it might have dazzled all the others out of the picture just a little bit. Because without Verity Lambert, be clear, there is no Doctor Who. At some point this spring, a new incarnation of Doctor Who will properly grace our screens. And when he does, just remember Verity. Okay, there, we have to leave it. Uh, I, I hate to leave you, but it's time to go. We'll be back next week with a reviews heavy issue of the show, as well as another wonderful woman of science fiction. Until then, all that remains is to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production. And to remind you that until we see you again, be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely everybody else. Stay safe. Stay sane. And above all else, stay geeky. We. We'll see you next week. Until then, goodbye!